Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I have to say once again, and I'll say it many more times in the next several days, wow, what an amazing spring fundraiser we had. Thank you so much for everything you did, the way you stepped up, the way you have prayed for us, the way you have generously and sacrificially given, and you uh, are amazing. And we love you like crazy, and we're amazed at all that's happened. And I think partnering with Feed My Starving Children as a result of all the the um, Team 40 gifts that came in, I think we ended up with about 18,000 meals that will be uh, served in Ukraine and in uh, that area uh, to people who are in really dire straits. So, uh, again, it was an amazing, amazing week, and uh, we're a little overwhelmed with your generous um, gifts and all the support. So thank you, and we're just not tired of saying thank you. But this hour is going to be great because I have Dr. Doug Gruthaus on. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, Evangelical Philosophical Society, and the Society of Christian Philosophers. He's written many books. The book we're going to talk about today is one uh, that probably should be in every family, it, like, and it should be an heirloom that gets passed down. Um, it's 809 pages, and I read all of it except the last 808 pages, Uh, But it's one of these books you want in your home. It's called Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. Dr. Doug Gruthaus is my guest. Doug, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be back. Yeah. I mean, you dropped this book on your toe and you're going to ER. Yeah, it has multiple uses. You can use it as a doorstop. (laughs) You can use it as a for weightlifting. Yeah. No. You you could use it as a weapon. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is a amazing book. I mean, I have not gone through all of it because I just got it, but this is a second edition, so I don't really have a lot of reasons not to have read the whole thing, but uh, the parts that I've gone through, it's just it's just a treasure trove of stuff, and this is something that I think really every family should have a copy of because if the point of references you make and the ways in which we can build our case for biblical faith, it's really, really powerful. Right. Well, thank you. The first edition was... 758 pages. This one, if you include all the pages, is 829, but it contains eight new chapters, and the print is smaller. I don't think it's oppressively small, but there's a lot more material here, and the reason I expanded it was that I taught the book, the first edition, for many years, mostly at Denver Seminary, and uh, I kept thinking, well, I left out this, and I left out that, and then I got the idea that since the book was still selling well, I guess uh, seven or eight years after it was published, that I would approach InterVarsity about doing a second edition. And they were up for that, and I thought maybe I'd given them too much material, but they included everything. I started with uh, a chapter called In Defense of a Church because I realized that most at least Protestant apologetics books don't really make a defense of 
the institution of the church, that Christ came to build his church. The gates of hell would not prevail against it, as he said in Matthew 16. So I make this strong case, I think, for Christ as God incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended, the God-man, the Savior, Lord. And I just kind of leave up in the air what happens if you believe in him. So I have a chapter there defending the church and then also talking about how the church itself is an apologetic, is a reason to believe in Christianity if we're really seeking God and being humble and trying to live according to his word. So that kind of began the process, and it's kind of ridiculous, but as I was looking over the book before the program here, I decided to highlight the new chapters, and there are actually eight new chapters, and in the introduction, I say there are seven new chapters, so I couldn't even keep track of how many (laughs) new chapters I wrote for the book. So, and there are new chapters on... Um, the argument from beauty, which I think is very important, that the beauty in nature indicates an artist behind nature. It's not the result of of uh, just an impersonal universe that popped into existence for no reason. And uh, I'm also very, <clears throat> I guess I could say, excited or uh, encouraged by two chapters I have here on the atonement, because this was another kind of hole I found in the book. I had a lot on the claims of Christ, the credentials of Christ, whole chapter on his resurrection. But I only had maybe four or five pages specifically on the atonement, what he did to redeem his people by his life and death. So that ended up being two chapters. Chapter 23 is called The Atonement, Stating It Properly. And I try to lay out the essential elements of the atonement. And then the next chapter is called The Atonement, Defending It. And in my research, I found that throughout history and even today, some people attack the idea of the atonement as unfitting for God. How could God punish his own son for our sins? And that that goes way back to Socinus, actually. So I think the way the book is laid out now uh, is more robust. I mean, it was already pretty big and meaty to start with, but I think it covers pretty much all that needs to be covered, at least in outline. And then also I have two biblical scholars helping me out. Dr. Craig Blomberg updated his chapter on the reliability of the New Testament, and Dr. Richard Hess updated his chapter called Apologetic Issues in the Old Testament. So I'm a, a philosopher, and uh, I've taught the Bible a lot. I teach in a seminary, but I'm not technically a biblical scholar, so I wanted those gentlemen to do the heavy lifting with those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I want to chat about some of the the newer chapters, Doug, but I also want to look at some of the, the other chapters. When you talk about yeah. atonement, I find that obviously fascinating because you're hearing more and more people uh, today say, you know, that... That's cosmic child abuse that you would have your son die on this on the cross of this hideous death. What's with all the blood and all the punishment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a pretty involved issue, but when you look at the Scripture and you consider the nature of God, you find, for example, when you read Romans, that the wrath of God is against uh, sin. 
And so God is rightfully angry at sin, and we are sinners. So what's going to happen with God's wrath and what's going to happen to us? And the tension is resolved by Christ himself, who was sinless and perfect, uh, vicariously taking our place. So this makes sense if you believe that God is equally loving as he is just and holy. So because he is just and holy, the punishment has to be meted out. But because he's loving, he provides the sacrifice himself in the person of Christ. So it's not that some mean, overbearing father God sent a unwilling, um, obedient son to do something he did not want to do. Uh, you see in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, he sent his son Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But in Philippians 2, you have the emphasis on the Son, who didn't count equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself and came to earth and died to atone for our sins. So I spend quite a bit of time explaining that. That element of the atonement is called propitiation. That word is used in the King James. It's used in a few other translations. The New International Version just says atoning sacrifice, but the deeper meaning is propitiation, which means to solve a hostility by appeasing the one who has been wronged. Mm -hmm. And that's a really vital aspect to the atonement. And I was very helped by a theologian by the name of Francis Turretin, who wrote extensively on that. And then more recently, William Lane Craig wrote a book called Atonement and the Death of Christ, and he very rigorously defends propitiation. And it's interesting that it's not only non-Christians that attack propitiation, heretics like Socinus or atheists like uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, attacked the atonement. Some people who are evangelicals don't think it's biblical. Wow. And uh, I disagree with them. You know, they they emphasize other aspects of the atonement, like Christ's defeat of Satan, which is true, First uh, John 3, 8, where they emphasize that he brought us into union with God, which is also true, uh, and that he took away the hostility that we have to God. That's actually called expiation. That's true. But Christ's death on the cross atoned for our sin against God and appeased God and made peace between God and man through what has been done. So when I wrote the first edition, I thought if I defend the deity of Christ, the miracles, the resurrection, the wisdom of Christ, and so on, then you'll just believe in the story of the atonement. But then I realized that that too needed to be elaborated on and defended much more thoroughly. And I did a lot of this work in 2020, and a lot of us spent quite a bit of time inside, and that's good for a scholar. <laughs> and I was mm -hmm. um, telling my wife, Kathleen, that probably of all the subjects and all the projects I've worked on in my entire Christian life, including my PhD work, I think I probably thought harder and worked harder on those two chapters on the atonement than just about anything I've ever done. But I'm happy with the result. I think I was able to look at all the material 
organize it fairly and defend it uh, cogently. Mm. We'll see. We'll see what the critics say if they even read it. But uh, I'm happy with it right now, anyway. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that some more. Dr. Doug Grudhaus is my guest. His second edition book out is called Christian Apologetics: A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. I have a signed copy, and by that I mean I signed my name in it saying, this is property of Bill Arnold, do not take this book, this is mine. But when we come back, we'll continue our discussion. We'll be right back. Back to the show. My guest is Dr. Douglas Grouthaus. In a weaker moment, I convinced him to do 100 appearances on my show, and after today, he's down to 90, so I'm very happy about that. We're talking about his book, Second Edition Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. A couple of uh, comments have come in. Um, Doug, one was, uh, Jesus' death, how could God kill Jesus? That's just how detestable sin is to God. We don't know how wretched our sin is. Yeah, I agree with that. And we have to realize that Jesus was uniquely placed in history because he represents us in a way that no one else can. And this has been one of the arguments against the propitiation aspect of the atonement is that it's just flat out unfair for God to punish an innocent person. Well, not if that person uniquely stands in for us. And actually, without that, there's no hope. There's no salvation because if God is as just as he is holy and loving, I mean, if he's holy and just and loving, then loving sends him to the cross, but justice sends him to the cross as well as our substitutionary sacrifice. And I think one element that's really important is that this was the will of all three members of the Trinity. There's no division among the members of the Trinity. So this was the plan, actually, from before the foundations of the world. And I think once you piece together all the different elements of um, what Christ did as the God-man with his sinless life, his love, and so on, then uh, propitiation makes sense. But we can't get away from the fact that it was terrible and bloody and horrible. Mm-hmm. And that simply underscores how horrible our sin is before a holy, holy, holy God, and how great the love of God is in Christ to not just suffer physically, but if you will, suffer metaphysically, you know, to take the punishment that we deserve. It's the most remarkable thing that's ever happened, really. Yeah. So It really is. I we had should a... come to him and accept that. Yeah, Amen. I had a Bible teacher in the last uh, half hour, Doug, but I'd love to ask a philosopher a question that came in in the last half hour, which is this. What do you say to someone who doesn't believe there is eternity in hell? A friend thinks that God loves us too much and is just and is just and wouldn't actually allow us to spend an eternity in hell. Right. I do have an appendix in the book about that question, but you really have to start with the full character of God, and I've already emphasized that God is just and holy and also loving. Actually, everything about him is holy. 
So I shouldn't really distinguish holiness from love. It's a holy love, and it's a holy justice. Uh, actually, A.W. Tozer made that point many years ago. But when I say holy, I mean transcendent and perfectly just, but also loving and caring. But you see, he's infinitely just. So sin is not a small thing to an infinitely holy God. So when Jesus comes and speaks to matters of eternity and how we relate to God, he speaks of eternal punishment. We see it in Matthew 25, 46, and in some other passages. So I think Jesus is uniquely credentialed to warn us about the realities of the afterlife, given his miracles, his fulfillment of prophecy, his death to atone for sin, his resurrection. So there is certainly a theological approach we can take concerning uh, the severity of sin against an infinitely holy God. Jonathan Edwards wrote about that. But then when we say, well, who should we believe on this? Uh, I think Jesus is, put it this way, I know Jesus is the ultimate authority on this. And he warned us about it. He didn't revel in the idea that people could be eternally separated from God. But he warned us, as does Paul and Peter and the rest of the New Testament, actually the rest of the Bible, because the whole story of the Bible is that God created a good world and we fell into sin, and he has been pursuing us ever since. And the ultimate act was everything that Christ did, particularly his death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. Doug, in chapter 6 of your book, you have why truth matters the most, searching for truth in postmodern times. That is a powerful chapter, and you say that the chapter develops a general apologetic for the significance and the value of both objective truth and truth-seeking. Many works of Christian apologetics assume that unbelievers want to know the truth but are unaware of good arguments to that end. While good arguments for Christian truth claims are indispensable, they are not sufficient. Many Unbelievers never seriously consider these arguments simply because they are unconcerned with truth. How do we deal with uh, truth in a postmodern time? Mm-hmm. Well, I think a good place to start is on the level of everyday experience. Uh, some people say, well, when you come to religion and philosophy, you can't really talk about objective truth. It's more a matter of subjective spirituality and that kind of thing. But if you go to a physician with uh, some kind of symptom, let's say severe stomach pains, you want to know what's going on in your body. You want to know what the facts are. Or if you are on an airplane, you want to have confidence that the airplane is well-maintained and you have a certified pilot who knows what he or she is doing. So we do assume there is truth and knowable truth in certain aspects of life. Now, we get to these ultimate questions like, what is the meaning of life? Where did the universe come from? What is the purpose of life? Is there an afterlife? And so on. Which religion, if any, are true or which is true? Uh, We need to pursue that. It's worth pursuing. Now, people will say you can deconstruct everything into opinion or into language and so on. But I argue that That's really not the case, that we all have this basic 
native understanding of a true statement is what corresponds to reality. A true statement is factual. And then you consider the fact that Christianity is the highest stakes situation you can imagine. You have eternal life to gain if Christ is true and you trust in him, and you have eternal life to lose if you do not come to him on his terms. And that's not just life in the afterlife, that's meaning for life right now and purpose and value in life right now and being reconciled to God and knowing God uh, as good and holy in your strength or not. I mean, that's not a trivial matter. That's of great significance. So, Doug, when you um, when you look at, in a postmodern world, when we're everyone seems to be coming up with their own version of what truth is, and they they seem to have themselves as the highest authority accountable to no one. You see more and more of it every day. How do we get the truth of the gospel into their psyche? How do we share that truth of, of God's word with somebody who just has this, you know, general hostility? Well, I think it's really important to be involved with people's lives and to get to know them, show them love, uh, let them ask you questions or maybe ask them questions about their perspective on life. Some people are not Christians because they haven't understood what Christianity is. They don't really know. Several years ago, I was preaching on Romans 1 in my church. It actually gave me the whole chapter for one sermon. That was challenging. But of course, Paul talks about the gospel, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So I started asking several people who were not Christians what the gospel was, and they didn't know. I asked one person, oh, is, that's a kind of music, isn't it? Gospel music? <laughs> um, and uh, somebody else said something differently, but they really didn't know. So we need to explain what it is and put it in the Christian worldview framework um, as I mentioned earlier, the story that God created the world good, we've fallen, he's pursuing us, he's manifested himself uh, definitively through Christ, the incarnation, he loves us, he paid the penalty for our sin, and so on. And then I think also inviting people into welcoming uh, Christian communities where the gospel is preached and unbelievers are treated with love and respect and so on, but the gospel is not diluted to try to please the world. So everyone has a different story. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. There's none that are perfectly righteous, spare Christ himself. But uh, there is a lot of misunderstanding about Christianity and uh, hostility, sometimes based on what Christianity does really teach. Yeah, Doug, let's pause that thought only because we're up against a hard break, and we'll come back. Dr. Doug Grudhouse is my guest. His book is Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. Be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. 
So glad to have Dr. Doug Grudhaus as my guest. We're talking about the second edition of his landmark work called Christian Apologetics, a comprehensive case for biblical faith. This uh, updated book has new chapters on uh, topics such as doubt, the atonement, the church, and lament as a Christian apologetic to know God in Christ. Doug argues that uh, we need to desire to make Christian truth available to others in the most compelling form possible, and he does it beautifully in this book. It is an amazing uh, piece of work, and I love having a copy of it. And if you want to go learn more about it, you can go to Amazon, of course, and you can download the first chapter, and you can get a taste of what it is. It's uh, not the cheapest book that I talk about, but it's uh, worth it's worth every penny. So, uh, Doug, I want to chat a little bit about the Christian worldview and some of the distortions going on in, in, in the Christian worldview. Um, when you, we talk about Christian worldview, that word Christian is used so much, sometimes I wonder if it means what we think it means. Well, that's true. It could mean just about anything. So mm-hmm. we have to try to explain what it means, and it means a, a follower of Jesus Christ. So you have to ask then, well, who is Jesus Christ and how do we follow him and try to differentiate what really is a Christian belief and a Christian way of behaving and what isn't. So that's where the discussion begins. And to a lot lot of people, Christian means uh, things like anti-intellectual, anti-science, maybe even racist, maybe sexist, superstitious, et cetera, et cetera. So what we need to do is try to deal with those obstacles that get in the way of people coming to Christ as Lord and Savior. So I have a chapter in the book called Distortions of Christianity, and uh, I actually added a fair amount to that. I added more about the LGBTQ matters, uh, which are very vexing and I was only able to take up a bit of that. But uh, this is, I think, one of the bigger issues now in presenting the Christian message is the idea that the Christian view of sexuality is is very artificial and restrictive. And we're getting to the point now where you can just create your own gender identity simply by saying it, by believing it. But if the overall case for Christianity is very strong, as I argue that it is, and if Christ is uniquely credentialed as Lord and Savior, and if he endorses uh, the Hebrew Bible and he endorses heterosexual monogamy as the way to live, and if he endorses self-control and so on, then we have good reason to believe that is true, and that is the way to live. And in fact, one issue I took up in the new edition uh, is related to something that was in a secular magazine called Philosophy Now. We wrote an article. It was kind of clever. They said, well, Christianity is really unfair because if some, if a um, homosexual becomes a Christian and his orientation doesn't change, then he can never act out on his sexual desires, and that's unfair, and that's actually cruel to the Christian. So I took that up. And I got an article published in Philosophy Now, I guess about two years ago about that. And I incorporated some of that into this chapter. And my basic response was, if Christianity is true, 
then the Lord can give people the strength to deny themselves in whatever area needs to be denied. And moreover, there's a lot more to life than sexual expression. Um, Jesus himself was not married. Of course, there's no indication he was uh, homosexual by any means. But I deal with things like that in the chapter. And this, I didn't really do it justice because there's so much going on in this area now. But uh, this is one of the areas where, uh, first of all, Christians need to hold their ground and say biblical morality is very clearly defined in terms of sexual behavior. It's heterosexual monogamy and faithfulness within uh, heterosexual marriage. But especially since 2015, with the Supreme Court decision that same-sex marriages were legal marriages, um, the floodgates have just been opened to all manner of uh, lifestyles concerning sexuality. So I try to examine uh, some of those claims and to lay out the biblical basics about Christian morality. But of course, there are whole books written on that. And uh, even though my book is big, you know, <laughs> I couldn't deal with every objection to Christianity mm-hmm. in, in great depth. But I tried to deal with, I think, six or seven major ones, like that it's anti-intellectual or anti-science. In fact, Christianity is very pro-science, and it was formative in the development of modern science in the West with people like um, Kepler and Newton and Galileo and Blaise Pascal and so on. And there's great scientific evidence for the existence of God from the origin of the universe out of nothing. What's called in the common language, the Big Bang, it teaches that everything came into being out of nothing a finite time ago. Well, that that coheres very nicely with the biblical view that God created everything by his word. And the, the universe is fine-tuned on a razor's edge for life. That's called the design argument, or one version of the design argument. And the evidence for both the Big Bang and for design, that there's a mind behind the universe that fine-tuned it for life, the evidence just keeps getting better and better as time goes on. Doug, so one of my, you know, oh, my burdens... Sorry, one of my burdens as an apologist is I want to lay out the arguments as best I can, but then I also want people to know what they are. Um, I want it to get to people, and I want these stereotypes of Christianity to be dismantled by people presenting the Christian message and defending it wisely. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the sexuality issues, Doug, it seems that there's a a drift with, I think there was a statistic of upwards of 32 or 34 percent of people who identify as Christian saying they're okay with same-sex marriage. And it certainly becomes a gotcha moment for a lot of people when you're having a discussion about uh, faith and about God's design for not only morality, but marriage. Um, it, it's one, one of those arguments that they try to, they try to get you in that gotcha moment as fast as they can. Right. Well, the biblical teaching is is really clear. All you have to do is go back to Genesis 1 and 2 to find the foundation for the family and sexual relationships. And then everything goes wrong at Genesis 3 with the fall. And Jesus reaffirms the norms of marriage in Matthew 19, 1 through 6, where he says God created them 
male and female, and he endorses marriage, and he's opposed to easy divorce and so on. And uh, Paul speaks to uh, sexual activity outside of heterosexual monogamy as sinful in Romans 1, 18 through 32, and there are other passages on that. Uh, but again, if there is a God, and if God designed us, and we are made in His image, and He is Lord, then God has the authority and the wisdom to instruct us as to how we should live. It's so fundamental. But I think sometimes people want a spirituality in their own image according to their own preferences, and they're not very concerned if objective reality might contradict them. Mm-hmm. But we need to be very concerned about objective reality, not just on the freeway, but in our spiritual lives, too. Yeah, right. Doug, is the design argument one of the newer chapters in the book? The cosmic fine-tuning and some of the evidence for intelligent design? No. uh, I did update the chapter on fine-tuning. Okay. Um, I'd love for you to say more about that. Yeah. Well, as I said, the argument just keeps getting better and better. There's a terrific new book out that I referenced. Uh, oh, I guess it came out about a year ago by Stephen C. Meyer called Return of the God Hypothesis. And I don't know if you've interviewed him, but you should. He's absolutely brilliant, man. And he gives the evidence strictly from science for a creator and a designer. And basically, there are all these features of the universe the cosmological constant, various proportions of elements in the universe that are just fine-tuned so carefully. And it's not just one or two, it's, it's many of them. I give seven in the book. But if any one of these features of the natural laws, proportions, constants, were off even infinitesimally, mm-hmm. it would be impossible to have conscious embodied life. So you have only three explanations for this. Either one, it's chance. It just happened. There's no explanation for it. The odds are fantastically against that. Or you could say it just had to be that way, like two plus two has to be four. Uh, The universe had to be this way if there's going to be a universe at all. And that's not the case at all, because these ratios, proportions, constants are contingencies. They didn't have to be that way. It's not like a necessary truth of logic or mathematics. So if you've left out, if you've eliminated chance and natural law or some combination of the two, then the only other alternative is very intuitively obvious, and that is design. It could have been any number of other ways, but it was design. So if you throw uh, five dice five times and they come up straight sixes every time, you don't say that's chance. You know, something was rigged. <laughs> some some design was involved in rigging this, so to speak. Uh, you know, if you're playing Yahtzee, that really works out well, but you should play fair when you play Yahtzee. But the idea is that uh, the universe is not a game of chance, and it didn't have to come up that way through some automatic, impersonal process. The best explanation for all these features, they're called they're called uh, anthropic coincidences. Is that there's a mind behind them, and that many of the more sophisticated elements of anthropic coincidences were have been discovered in the last forty or fifty years, and 
it's not like anyone has refuted this. In fact, in my chapter, I go through all the major ways that people try to refute this. And it can't be refuted. I mean, it gets crazy because people have come up with this idea of the multiverse and they say, well, sure, one universe is just improbable, highly improbable if God didn't design it. But what if there are millions or billions or an infinity of universes? We just happen to be the lucky universe. You know, we're the, mm-hmm. the roll of the dice that came up with this. And at that point, you say, isn't that a rather desperate move? Uh, because you're positing all these unobservable universes just to make sure this one isn't designed. <laughs> so I, I have oversimplified the criticism a little bit, but it's pretty much along those lines. And the problem is with a lot of people is they think that God cannot serve as an adequate rational explanation for anything. We have to rely on naturalistic science to explain everything, whether it's the origin of the universe, the design of the universe, the origin of life. And what I do in the book is to say that those naturalistic explanations, that is an explanation according to a, an atheistic worldview, don't work. The explanations don't work. And the, the explanation that there is a personal designing being who created the universe, designed the universe, brought about life, uh, is more rational. It has better evidence going for it. But if you're just absolutely opposed to God as explaining anything, you'll never see it. But I think that's an irrational prejudice. Mm-hmm. Dr. Doug Grudhaus is my guest. His book, uh, second edition, is Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. When I come back, I want to ask him about lament as a Christian apologetic. Be right back. Dr. Doug Grudhaus is my guest. He's written a book. This is his second edition. It's called Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for for Biblical Faith. And it is a big book. It's 800 and some pages. So it is quite a comprehensive uh, piece of work. So thanks to him for assembling this and defending the faith so beautifully and giving us tools with which we can use in our own uh, life for um, not only making us more confident, but as we go out into the world and uh, have discussions with people about faith, it's an important uh, important tool to have. So, Doug, let's talk about lamenting as a Christian apologetic. Say more about that, please. Yes. Well, uh, one issue that every worldview, every religion has to deal with is suffering and evil in the world. So which worldview best explains these uh, sad realities of suffering and evil So I have a big chapter in the book called The Problem of Evil, and I argue that the Christian worldview gives us a solid foundation for what is good. It's really based on the character of God, and God created a good world, but it's been affected by sin. But God cares enough about the world to continue to reach out to us to make himself evident in nature and sends the prophets and ultimately comes in the person of Christ to redeem us. So I think that 
we have as Christians the best explanation for God, good and evil. And that's a very short summary of that. But then over the years, I realized that it's not just that we have the best intellectual answer for explaining God, good and evil, but we also have the best existential way of living through suffering. And of course, that is modeled for us by many biblical characters. We have the Psalms of Lament in the Old Testament, about 60 of them. And ultimately, we have Jesus himself who went to the cross on our behalf to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on the cross, he prayed Psalm 22, Psalm of David, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the ultimate lament of Christ taking our punishment, paying our debt, stepping into our place to redeem us shows us that suffering can have meaning. And of course, we just recently celebrated Easter, that he died, he was buried, but he rose again from the grave. Mm -hmm. The tomb was empty and he appeared over a 40-day period. And I've got a I think a pretty solid chapter on actually two chapters now on the resurrection. But the point is that people might say, well, how can God be all good and all powerful and there be so much evil? He just wouldn't allow it. And I'd say, well, I think we have some reasons for believing that Christianity is true, even in in light of all the evil, but then also Christianity focusing on Christ himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah and as laid out in the gospels gives us a way to suffer with meaning, or you might say suffer well. And there's a lot of, a lot in Scripture about lament, which means basically unburdening yourself before God, whether it's questioning, maybe even anger, maybe doubt. But we have these psalms of lament, like Psalm 22, Psalm 39, 88, 90, and many others that are prayers. Uh, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. So we can suffer well. I mean, suffering is a skill nobody wants to learn, but sometimes you have to. We all have to at some level. And I wrote a previous book called Walking Through Twilight that was a lament about my first wife, Rebecca, who contracted dementia and, and died in 2018. So what I wanted to do in this new chapter is to explain that Christianity is not just the most rational worldview that explains the facts and makes meaning out of life, but it's also the best way to live. It's uh, existentially superior, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's existentially superior given the wisdom we have in Scripture about how to suffer, and then not just the wisdom, but God's presence in our life, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture is very realistic about how damaged the world is. If you look at Romans chapter 8, it speaks of groaning, that we groan, the whole creation groans, and even the Holy Spirit within us groans, awaiting the full redemption of the world. But we look forward with hope because of what Christ has done, because of his death and resurrection and ascension and in light of him having all authority in heaven and on earth, and in light of him coming back one day to make all things right. But in the meantime, there is some very keen, very sharp-edged suffering we have to go through. And 
uh, I know from experience that uh, I certainly suffered a lot better as a Christian than I would have without Christ, despite mm-hmm. my own lapses and my own mistakes and so on. Mm-hmm. Doug, I, talking about the problem of evil, I'll try to paraphrase something Chesterton said about the existence of evil as being the, the only religious doctrine that can really be empirically proven. That's why some people come yeah. to believe in the devil before they believe in God. Right. Yeah, I think the actual quote was original sin okay. is the uh, the one, and that's really what you're getting at, is that people are morally very flawed and even evil, and that's pretty obvious. So if we are, and if we're beset by selfishness in various ways and cruelty, then what do we do about it? I mean, to say that we have fallen short of the standard means there is a standard. Our conscience bears witness to that. So either we can deceive ourselves and say we haven't sinned, or we can admit that we've sinned and try to do enough good works to compensate, and both of those are utter failures. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is confess our sins to the Lord, come to Him for salvation. Only He can offer it. Only He can give it to us and receive full and complete pardon through the finished work of Christ, and then live out our life day by day, moment by moment, trying to walk in the Spirit, grow in knowledge. And when we sin, be quick to confess that sin, keep short accounts with God, and aspire for a greater love in the world, love for God and love for our neighbor and even love for our enemies. Mm-hmm. Before I get to my next question, we've only got about four minutes left. Uh, a question from a listener. Can you repeat the name of the book about creation? Was that a Stephen Meyer book? Yes, it's Stephen Meyer. It's called Return of the God Hypothesis. Okay. Um, right. And, I, Doug, I'd love to talk about the hiddenness of God. I know you talk about it in your book. Yes, that's a big issue in about the last... 30 years in philosophy of religion, now that's more the technical element of it, but it's, I think, a fairly common concern, and that is, if there is a God who created everything and who is everywhere all the time, why isn't he more obvious? (laughs) Why can't we just directly see him or Mm -hmm. ask him a question, and then we hear a voice come out of a cloud answering the question? So I tried to address this in one of the chapters. It's, uh, It's an involved issue, but I could say a few things about it quickly. First of all, I think there are adequate arguments for the existence of God uh, that meet the criticisms leveled against them. And I mentioned, two from science, that the world has an origin, it was created, and that it was designed. And of course, we've got arguments for the reliability of Scripture and the uniqueness of Jesus and so on. But not everyone, even when they're presented with the best arguments, will believe. So, there is an element of choice here. There's an element of what kind of character you have been developing throughout your life. And I love the Pascal quote where he says, there's enough evidence for God for those who are open to it, and there's enough obscurity for those who are not open to it. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's a paraphrase, but there's enough evidence to convince those who are seeking, but there's enough darkness to allow those who are not really seeking to remain in the darkness. I think that explains a lot, is that God is available to those uh, who are open to him, but he doesn't 
force us to believe in the sense of just absolutely overwhelming us with with evidence of his presence constantly. So that's the way that I lay that out. And also in the same chapter, I deal with the problem of doubt in the Christian life. Uh, even John the Baptist doubted Jesus. We see that in Matthew 11, and Jesus was very gentle. Mm-hmm. Uh, John had sent people to Jesus because John was actually in prison. But Jesus says, look, you have every reason to believe I'm the Messiah. I'm working miracles. I fulfill prophecy and so on. So he gave reasons, and he was gentle. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of Christians are afraid to ask questions because they're afraid to admit to doubts, and then they don't have the kind of intellectual confidence they could have if yeah. they they realize that doubts can lead to a deeper faith. It's certainly That's been true in my case. So true. Doug, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today to be here with me and my listeners. It's always really great to talk to you. Oh, you only have 90, 90 more appearances to make, and then you're released. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Well, that means I need to live a long time, so thank you. <laughs> All right. Have a great night, Doug. Thanks. You too. You Bye. Bye. Dr. Doug Grudhaus has been my guest. His book is Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. What a amazing book. This is uh, 800 and some pages, and it is a uh, quite comprehensive. That's our show for the day. Thanks for being with me. Thank you also for last week. Our share was amazing. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.